Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. Today we have Liam O'Mara, who is the Democratic candidate for Congress in California's 42nd. He's uh, part of the Humanity First movement, supports UBI policy. Um, Say hi, Liam. Hi. um, So I'm Liam O'Mara, and I am the uh, Democratic candidate in the the 42nd in Southwest Riverside County. Um, So just a little bit about me. Um, I have a working class background but, and got into college at age 30 and then went straight through to a PhD. So I've been uh, teaching uh, history for the past 13 years. And Wow, you got a late start. That's that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I never expected to go to college. Um, no one in my family ever, mine's the first degree in my family. So That's really uh, cool. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah thanks. Um, it, I mean, it just put me into essentially my dream job, um, being able to sort of share my passion for this kind of material, um, kind of shake people up a little bit. Um, I love the fact that um, college education is essentially about breaking through indoctrination and teaching people critical reasoning skills and whatnot. So I really appreciate that. And I teach a lot of uh, Middle East history, which is not well understood in the US at all. And uh, a lot of um, what we call like intellectual or cultural history, like the history of ideas. So we kind of like take people through major systems like economics and politics and whatnot and show people how they really work and how they evolve to get where they are. Wow, that's great. So you are a unique candidate and that you can credibly say that you come from a working class background. So you are not part of the evil elite establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet at the same time, you're also qualified for your job because you have relevant education. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it means that I'm I'm relatable to ordinary working people. I still fully identify as a working class person. In fact, uh, I mean, like I said, I've been teaching for 13 years. I never took. Well, you work for a living, so. <laughs> you know, so. I mean, I still, I do still think of myself as uh, entirely a worker, uh, but I do have graduate training in things like economics and history, and can actually speak to the policy issues that got us into the problems that we're in. And what really pushed me into politics was, I mean, I, I spent years telling my students they should get involved. I mean, hey, it's it's not my choice what you vote for, but vote, get involved, do something, like try and change the world. And I have to keep looking them in the eyes and realize that their their potential is so much lesser. Like three generations in a row have not done as well as their parents. We are in sharp decline in this country after 40 years of broken public policy. And it's time people stood up and said, enough is enough. We have to change direction. And you think UBI is a solution to that. You said off air that uh, you've supported it for a number of years. So you didn't just get into this because of Yang. Um, but I'm, I'm guessing that when you saw a credible presidential candidate supporting that policy, that must have made you feel like, huh, maybe I can do this. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've been a fan of, of UBI for decades. And the fact that it was raised and discussed publicly in the 60s and 70s and then forgotten endlessly bothers me because it is the single best solution to poverty. And instead of actually solving poverty when we could have, we've let it get worse in this country. Uh, We're the only rich country that is sliding backwards with more people falling into poverty and out of the middle class, which endlessly offends me. So yeah, I've been a fan of of basic income, you know, whatever you want to call it, universal basic income, guaranteed minimum income. I mean, the idea has been around for quite some time. And I was honestly both shocked, amazed, and extremely happy to see someone running for president on a platform like that because it mainstreamed the idea. In the same way that 
the Bernie's run um, in in sixteen mainstreamed the idea of Medicare for all, which also was discussed in the nineteen sixties, and then we conveniently forgot about doing it. Bringing these ideas back to the forefront uh, of our political conversations has been uh, just immensely beneficial. I have to say, as a person who supports UBI myself, I'm, I'm very happy to see you um, as the actual Democratic nominee. Um, unfortunately, too many people in this movement are trying to do the third party thing. Um, a lot of people are failing to win primaries. You are the Democratic nominee in a district in California. So you have a real credible shot of actually uh, making it to Congress and uh, moving the needle on public support of this policy. Um, and of course, also political um, congressional support of it, which is lagging behind public support. Mm-hmm. Uh, frankly. So thank you for doing that. Uh, I, I really, I really hope you win. Yeah, that's the the key. And honestly, for me, it's a big part of the, the rationale for running in a district that I'm in, because the 42nd is usually written off as a safely red seat. So it's hard to gather a lot of national attention to it, especially since the current incumbent's been in office since 93, which is insane. But it's not actually demographically red at all. It's demographically at least purple. The numbers between Democrats and Republicans are quite close. Republicans only have a narrow edge. It's largely independents. And there are huge groups of people who just don't vote, mostly youth, working class people. And uh, we have very large um, immigrant, uh, you know, a- Asian immigrant and Hispanic populations who are also frequently not politically activated, many of them not registered to vote. And we have registered a lot of new people. The Democratic numbers have jumped by 3% in the past year alone. And a lot of people that we talk to are excited about the fact that I'm, I'm running on a primarily economic platform, that I'm talking about basic kitchen table issues that affect everyone instead of getting into all this, you know, frankly, bullshit culture war stuff like the incumbent is doing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely refreshing to see people who are talking about economics instead of wedge issues. Um, I think both parties have been guilty of, uh, of using wedge issues to distract and divide the American people to some extent, although I think certainly it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that lately the Republicans have been the greater offenders, and I see that as an ex-Republican myself. Um, so what, what would you consider your odds? What's the race looking like for you there? We have by far the best numbers against Calvert since the 1990s. Um, So I think we have a very solid shot here. The only things that have really, that it impeded at all is just, it's, we, we, we can't have talked to everyone. The pandemic really got in the way of a lot of our outreach, but I have a very young and nimble campaign staff. We adapted very quickly to a digital infrastructure and we are extensively phone banking and text banking, trying to reach every possible person. And that is going to be um, our, our path forward here and our path to victory. The, uh, the last time that Calvert was seriously threatened was in 2008. And we had a, a candidate that came within two points of beating him. And he also ran on a mainly economic platform and on getting us out of these ridiculous wars. And when, if you look at the primaries, the, the share of Calvert's vote was much higher in that race than it was against us. And that tells us that the needle is really shifting. And if that 4% difference in the primaries holds, given that, um, you know, 
that candidate in 2008 was only two points behind. And we do have a significant enough turnout here because of the national situation, the pandemic, the, the depression, Trump, everything else. The district is absolutely flippable. I mean, um, what, what does the what are the demographics of your district look like? Not just in terms of po- political ideology, but you know, so economically, are we talking urban, suburban, rural? It's actually a really interestingly mixed district. Um, it's close to forty percent Hispanic, um, which is the the share of that has been increasing, and the uh, the immigrant shares have been increasing. Uh, people from like the Philippines, Korea, whatnot. Um, there's there's significant populations have been shifting in. Historically, it was a very white area um and the and part of it the western half was essentially like exurbs and suburbs of the la and orange county area where people sort of moved out to get cheaper bigger houses so there's a significant white working uh, sorry white middle class population in those cities um but there's also a large rural chunk uh in the eastern half filled with you know literal farms and very small towns and unincorporated areas so it's a really broad mix. Uh, that, of- that is unusual, especially especially in California. That's really neat. Um, well, you have something going for you there, which is that middle and upper middle class suburban white voters have been turning away from the GOP ever since Trump became the nominee. Um, so you might have an in, in there. He does seem to have a real stranglehold on rural voters. Um, I wonder if you're spinning UBI as something that is beneficial to rural areas and small towns and and small businesses uh, might be able to help you at least get some of those folks away from Trump. We absolutely are. And it's the same thing behind really all of my other major policy areas. I tend to frame them or message them in a way that touches on the economic situation as opposed to uh, say like moral arguments. I mean, when like uh, Martin Luther King talked about basic income, he put it in more moral terms. I tend to put it in simple economic terms, like this is going to change everyone's life and injecting more money into the economy. Because if you give working class people money, they spend most of it. You give more money to the rich, they sit on more of it. So it's trying to push people away from this this understanding. And then people say, well, how do we pay for this stuff? I'm like, well, you know, we give like $600 billion in corporate welfare every year. We've given massive tax cuts to the rich that they didn't need and which did nothing for the economy. Well, actually, it did do something for the economy. It slowed growth because that's predictably what it does. If you want faster growth and you want to affect the real economy, you need to shift that money from the rich who don't need it to the working class who do because they spend it. And that affects the small businesses in our area. It endlessly bothers me that Democrats will cede the economy to Republicans and let Republicans spin their stories about small businesses and the economy and whatnot with a completely bankrupt ideology. And Democrats will talk and said more about those wedge issues. You're right that Republicans do do a lot more of the culture war type stuff, but both parties really are guilty of focusing on issues that don't really affect ordinary people's lives. And I'm trying to say, look, what I'm doing is going to lower your cost of living, lower your debt level, lower the cost of housing. It's going to increase your quality of life. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so since you have some affluent white voters who are already turning away from Trump in your district, speaking of the the suburbs and and to some extent the exurbs, um, I'm just wondering, rhetorically speaking, have you um, kind of spun the UBI narrative in terms of it actually being de facto tax relief for the middle class? Because I've run the numbers and for people who aren't obscenely wealthy, that is actually how it works out. In, in practice, mm-hmm. it's essentially yeah. the largest um, tax cut that the middle class has had in living memory. Yeah, for sure. And in fact, I do exactly the same thing for Medicare, because Medicare, if passed, would be the largest single tax cut to the middle class in decades. Uh, both of them would greatly lower our, uh, our cost of living and have put more money in our hands. And I talk about that a lot. I try to make the argument regularly to people that what I'm doing is effectively running to lower your taxes. And Calvert gets to claim that he's lowered taxes. And what he did in voting for both W's tax cut and Trump's tax cut, as they call them, were actually raised taxes in the area here. The, the, the tax rate in our region for people has practically doubled in the last 40 years. And people just don't seem to understand that that's tied to broken federal policy and that things like Medicare and UBI would lower that. It would put more money in our hands. It would let keep, let's keep more of what we earn, too. I think so, that yeah, there's I, a genuine argument to be made there on, on uh, Medicare for all, at least in the case of people who don't already have insurance through their employer. Um, of, of course, a lot of professional and middle class, well, well off white voters who historically um, have been a more reliable voting demographic for Republicans um, do get their their insurance in that way. And so in their in their case, it wouldn't necessarily result in a savings if their taxes well, go up, but they don't. Well, I mean, I'm just saying I'm saying I'm not trying to argue with you, of course, yeah. Liam. I'm just saying I think in the case of UBI, um, it's an even more cut and dry case because it's mm-hmm. just cash and everybody gets the same amount regardless of what income demographic they're in. Yeah, with UBI, the bigger argument is showing people how how it can be afforded, like how we can do it, that it, it doesn't somehow like blow up the federal budget or this or that. Um, and people do come on board with it much more easily. In both cases, I mean, the like employer-based insurance is honestly an insane way to do things, and it's ripping off the middle-class people in our area. You might be you might get health insurance from your employer. But it's like 15 grand out of your compensation package. And, you know, your share of a Medicare for all scheme would be one to two thousand dollars. So that's true. But that's also assuming that that's assuming that your employer would pass those savings on to you with a massive raise. That's the thing. This might not happen. That's the thing. They have to. If, If it's if the legislation is done right, then they can't take that because it's literally your compensation package. When you agreed to work for that employer, they offered you X amount in compensation and that included the insurance. The employers don't. The employers will save money as well in doing it, but they still owe you what they agreed to pay you. So I'm, um, that's an interesting point. I, I actually haven't seen money. specific. I actually haven't seen specific legislation um, written that way in the past, and I would welcome it. That would that would make it that would certainly make it better. Yeah, it's something that I mean, uh, it, in in Congress, I will make sure it is a direct provision of the Medicare for All bill. That if when we pass Medicare for all, it would include the provision that your compensation package is still your compensation package. Okay, can you clarify why that would save the employer money? Uh, the employers are 
also having to be the employees are, are being massively overcharged for insurance. They're paying at, you know huge amounts of money into these different private insurance companies, but in, the insurance itself does not need to be as pricey as it is. It's a it's a massive scam in a sense because you know it's done right now for profit, whereas a public insurance scheme wouldn't be done for profit. So you immediately take out the need to appease shareholders and you put everyone into the same risk pool. Instead of having dozens of different insurers, if there's a single insurer, the overall cost to insure goes down massively. So the employer is not paying out anything at all for this insurance and it simply can pass on what it does, because it also pays like a significant amount in like taxes and whatnot. It has to mm. pay in taxes for these things. If it no longer has to pay for the insurance, it's it's not being taxed on that process either. Okay, yeah, that, that there's the answer to the question. So that that makes perfect sense to me. I like that. So basically, the uh, em, em, the your employer is paying a certain amount of money for your insurance directly, but then also taxes on top of that. And so what this would save is those additional taxes, even if they um, are forced um, by the government to switch what they are currently spending on insurance over to your compensation package. So it really is kind of a win-win situation where only private insurance companies lose out. Exactly. So what it does is it takes out this, uh, this wasteful middleman sector that we don't actually need to get the job done. There are many things in which uh, private businesses and free markets are far more efficient and will produce better value for consumers. And there are areas where it will not. Insurance is clearly a case where, quote unquote, free market solutions don't actually produce useful benefits because you're dividing the risk pool. I mean, it's, it's a simple actuarial problem. The larger that pool is, the smaller the overall cost to each individual in the system. I mean, sure. I did okay. the math, and at my income level, switching to a Medicare for all system would put ten thousand dollars of my my money back in my pocket. That's, that makes sense, and I'm assuming you're rate. at a higher income level than the average voter in your district. What was that? And I'm assuming you're probably at a higher income level than the average voter in your district. Uh, not really. No, uh, my income, uh, be- because of the way um, the classes work and whatnot, my income will vary from uh, you know forty five to seventy k. Yeah, okay. I usually right. average in the 60s, which actually puts me lower than a lot of the uh, the middle class suburban families out here, the 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 kind of like the white middle class in a lot of the um the suburbs. Would you say that it's also true that those people would would I mean, I I believe they would save money Absolutely. de facto on their taxes due to UBI, but also in, in the case of case, Medicare for all? In both cases. I mean, it, at every income level, you know, up to like a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, you're saving a considerable amount of money. Even there you're saving a little bit of money. Okay, I mean, so the, it the would it would involve would raising to, it would involve raising um, taxes uh, on certain income levels uh, in order to fund it. Would it involve raising taxes on, say, the working class or the lower middle class, or no? No, not at all. That's that's the thing. If if you pay uh, at below a certain income level, there's no pay in at all to the system. And in in most levels, if you're paying in twelve hundred dollars or fifteen hundred dollars in taxes, but you're getting ten thousand dollars back either from employer things or you're saving the money from your direct cost of having to go in or pay for it yourself because a lot of people pay for their own health insurance and that health insurance is considerably more expensive i mean a lot of people i mean if you're buying like insurance on on the uh the obamacare exchanges the aca stuff and you're paying 200 300 400 500 a month on it 
but the Medicare for All system is going to charge you $1,000 a year, you've saved a lot of money. So the working class will save considerably, the middle class will save considerably, but it really, really it doesn't involve having a massive tax raise for anybody, really, because again, the larger risk pool means the overall cost to insure is so much lower. And with that, is the form pool, of Medicare for all that you support to, to... more along like uh, Andrew Yang's lines or more along Bernie Sanders' lines? Is, is that again? I, what was it? Yeah, the form of Medicare for all that you support, would you say it's more along Bernie Sanders' lines of uh, um, single payer, or is it more like Andrew Yang's line of making Medicare available to everybody but still allowing private insurance? Uh, the the question of the whole uh, public option, so to speak, like the, um, the setting up the competition between them, realistically, that could have helped what, what, uh, what Yang was sort of like proposing there or what was initially proposed when they were doing the ACA of having like a public auction, basically opening up Medicare to, to people, but not affecting the overall system, it doesn't lower the cost as much. Done that way, it would actually have to increase public spending on healthcare. Done as a Medicare for all, more in the Bernie Sanders model, it would lower the costs. Because again, the risk pool there and the ability to then negotiate better with the suppliers, with the, the pharmaceutical companies and everything else. If you're still that's true, it definitely in, increases uh, collective bargaining power, but you you are also losing um, choice as an individual purchaser, correct? Not really, and that's an, and that's another argument that I make a lot in this uh, in this region because people talk about choice there, and honestly, what is the point of the choice of like the basically the, the bean counter because that's all you're talking about. A Medicare for all system would allow you to go wherever you want for healthcare. Right now, we don't have choice. We have to be within whatever particular system our insurer provides. You can go to this doctor and that doctor, but not this one. You can get this medication, but you can't get that one, whatever is covered in the plan. A Medicare for all system dramatically increases our choice by not locking us into particular networks. So it's yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that's a good point in terms of having more choice uh, in your doctor, but you do have you do like, for example, if you're just not happy with the way that the insurance structure is set up um, under uh, the public system, um, you have no alternative in a single payer. That that's like just speaking as myself as an individual voter. That's why I personally am a little bit weary about single payer. I definitely support a public option. So, what could you say to assuage my concerns about that? Well, the key issue there depends a lot on how it's written and whether it's allowed to be damaged because the Medicare system was heavily watered down and, and, and changed, um, particularly by a lot of like our Republican Congresses that we've had in order to increase costs for people and lower their, their choices there. The key is to write it such that all it does is provide the funds, that it doesn't basically make those decisions like you cannot have this. And that's the key issue with uh, a lot of healthcare anyway is you want the best plan that's going to offer you what you need, what you need to be to be healthy, right? And if the plan is basically just set up to say that if the doctor says person X needs this, then it's covered, period. The Medicare for All bill needs to simply cover everything. And then all it is is like a, a rubber stamp and the transfer of cash to support things. 
as opposed to an insurance company. I mean, I remember the the fights over the ACA and, and you had like, you know, Sarah Palin out there going, you'll have death panels that will say like grandma has to be killed or something. And it's ridiculous because we already have those. The corporate death panels already exist. There are people who make those decisions. You do not deserve this test. You do not deserve this surgery. We're not going to pay for it. And your choice is either to go bankrupt to, to pay for it yourself or to die. And this, if the bill is written such that it just covers things, then you have literally the Cadillac of plans. We would be going from, right now we have the worst healthcare system in the developed world with the highest cost. We would be going to the best healthcare system based around the way the current Medicare for All proposals are written because they're just supposed to cover everything. And that includes also like dental vision and mental health, which there's all kinds of exemptions for and covers all the prescriptions. So you don't have to deal with like the massive co-pays that go with that. I mean, the trick is basically to eliminate all of that stuff and have it simply be where the cash passes through in a kind of like nonprofit system. Right. I, that's a, what about people who are a little skeptical about whether or not the government would actually follow through on that promise, right? Because it sounds good, but what if they don't want to cover something and you literally have nowhere else to go? Well, that's the thing. I mean, you'd still always have the ability to get to, to, to take care of something, to, to find a way to, to pay for something. But again, it really depends upon how the bill is written. If you if we elect people who are going to oversee this process and make sure this bill does not allow them to deny things that the physicians want, then you, we don't have the problem there. I get the, the fear and distrust there. Certainly, with the, there's tons of flaws in the current Medicare system. There's tons of flaws in tons of things the government does. It has to be written well in the legislation. It's also one of the reasons that I bring up the compensation package issue because that isn't brought up a lot, and it needs to be in there. Yeah, I have to say that um, it seems like a really good hack to me uh, The comp because that would make a huge difference in terms of my personal situation. Yeah, where I, mean, I would support I would, what I you described, but I would not support it without that hack. Exactly. I, I would vote against it without it. Uh, you know, if, if we get a Medicare That's bill- That's a good line. I like does, that. If we get a Medicare bill that does not cover everything and does not force the compensation package to be honored so that your employment contract actually gives you the money that you were promised, I would vote, I would vote it down and demand a better one. That's true, but we also have to be careful about, you know, there's always the, the, the political strategy issue of making the perfect the enemy of the good, too. Because it, it seems to me that for, for what you're proposing to work, the onus is on voters to elect enough people like you. Um, and if we don't, it, then, you know, it won't be possible. Well, essentially, yeah, but that's, that's literally true for any major change that we need to do. But yes. the other half of it um, has to involve the, the discussions in the public sphere. And one of the reasons that I'm running is um, I enjoy talking about these issues. I would be a much more activist congressperson than, than a lot that are in there, like standing on the floor and on C-SPAN, whatever, making arguments for these issues, talking in the media about these issues and helping to sway public opinion, which again is one of the reasons that I have massive respect for both Andrew Yang and Bernie Sanders, because they get out there and they take an unknown or unpopular idea and they make it popular by talking about it. We have to do that. And if we can change the views of voters, and if people currently in Congress don't want to lose their job to a challenger, then their positions will shift. 
It has a yeah, lot I have to say, as a as an ex-Republican who now considers himself a conservative Democrat and even pro-establishment, which makes me a little unusual for a Yang supporter, <laughs> I've noticed. Um, I have to say, I, I, I like the way you're selling it. Um, I like the, the, the way that you're um, suggesting we do the policy. I actually appreciate that you're making a clear economic argument and being straight about it as opposed to making the moral argument, because the moral argument, it seems to me... If you use, you know, kind of a class warfare argument like some people do, um, that that is just inevitably going to guarantee that you're not going to get any uh, votes of people who consider themselves to be part of the class that you're attacking. Well, well yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's a key issue, too, um, in getting past a lot of the, the, the nonsense culture war crap uh, and all these like, you know, capitalist and socialist stuff there. We and, and one of the reasons, again, that I like Yang is that he's trying to transcend the labels there and get us just talking about what works and what doesn't work. I mean, I yeah, don't... Although, I mean, I guess he didn't fully transcend them. He does call himself a human capitalist, which I personally well, sure, like. But, but it, and again, that's, that's fine, but it it's not setting up this, this weird contrast and this weird fight. It's one of the things that I... I he drew a lot of support from both the right and the left. Uh, and had a very nuanced positions on a lot of ideas, which I think we need more of. We have too many people that take these hard positions and attack things. And, you know, honestly going after people and saying like, ah, this is the enemy. This is the enemy here. We need to just talk about what works for people and what works for the overall economy. Putting money in the hands of billionaires does not help the economy at all. It doesn't mean such and such person is bad or we're supposed to go out there like, you know, again, playing the whole class war games there. It's about like what would work to help ordinary people to put money in their pockets? Yes. And and also, frankly, to help um, people who are already doing better than average. Right. Because as as you said, pretty much anybody who you could credibly call upper class, I'm sorry, upper middle class as opposed to obscenely rich. Um, would 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 come out ahead in this system. Exactly. So I, I think that that's an important thing because if you if you if, I, part of what I don't like about the traditional uh, class war kind of left wing sort of socialist narrative is that it, it ends up pitting um, the middle class against the poor um, or against mm-hmm. the working class, and uh, that just seems like a failing political strategy. If if there's no other reason, if only that, that would be a reason not to go that way. It does, and honestly, as a historian, the way we use middle class in this country kind of offends me. I mean, I'm stuck using it because everyone uses it, but honestly, nearly all of us are working class. I mean, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a ditch digger or a college professor. If you work for a salary for someone else, you are literally working class. Anybody working for a paycheck is a working class person. Yeah, especially especially if you're actually dependent upon that paycheck in order to, to survive. When you're not dependent upon it, when you can sit back and make money off of your investments, that's the you know your, your middle class that's your your uh, your, your capitalist class, the and it, and it ends up being a very much very sm- a small part of the overall population. But we use the term differently, and because we use it differently, I often have to say working and middle class, and I link them together. And I don't make the middle class feel like they're the enemy because they're not. Honestly, I want all Americans to be millionaires. I think we all could do much much better. I don't have a problem with people making a good salary. I do kind of have a problem with people who sit back and don't do anything to, to rack in t- billions and billions of dollars. That does not actually help all of us. But I want all of us to do better. 
And to right, feel- but presumably you don't have a problem with just middle class capitalists, right? Who not at all. Have, no, I mean, yeah, because, you know, yeah. they they own well, a couple of rental people. houses or a small business, or they've yeah, invested I, a little money I in the stock market. That's all good, right? We should want it, more of that. Exactly, and this is one of the things that again pisses me off about a lot of um, democratic rhetoric. There is that they don't effectively appeal to small businesses and, and and small property owners and whatnot, and they allow Republicans to dominate that vote. My platform is a whole lot better for small business than than Ken Calvert's is. But people associate the Republican brand with support for small businesses. And since it's literally empirically not true, it bothers me a lot that we have such a hard time with those discussions. And I think a lot of it just has to do with the the history of, on the one hand, class war language, but also all the other culture war type of issues and and the, the different focus people tend to have. Yeah, and it also has a lot to do with your approach towards social democratic policy, right? Because you, you're threading the needle between center left and center right concerns um, in a way that a lot of radical leftists don't, not just in terms of rhetoric, but also in terms of policy. Right, exactly. I'm trying to make the case that that the social democratic position is actually best for a middle class and for small businesses, that it's not somehow harmful to them. There All right, Liam, will you convince me if I lived in your district, I'd vote for you? Assuming <laughs> you convince some of our listeners, how can they uh, how can they support your – I mean, obviously, if they live in your district, they should vote for you there. Hey, but yeah. if they don't, um, or even if they do, how can they support your campaign financially? Uh, how can they volunteer? Yeah, there's a, a number of ways to help out. So first off, obviously, donating to the campaign is the single best way to do it because the key to victory for us is getting enough of those phone calls and texts out and actually reaching enough voters to do it. Um, and we tech, we, we phone bank and text bank several days a week already. Um, so there's like a, a short bit.ly link, like, uh, you know, uh, bit.ly slash Liam donate takes you directly to the act blue page, but you can also find it from a link at the top of my website, which is the super generically named Liam Um, and, um, you know, that's one good way to do it. And also on the same page, uh, at the top, there's also a volunteer link. And because campaigns are virtual during the pandemic, you can phone bank and text bank from literally everywhere. We connect the volunteers through Zoom and everything is done through a web browser for both systems. So we always appreciate the help in reaching people and getting our message out and talking about UBI to people in this district and, and showing them that their living standards will improve with me and Congress advocating for them. But yes, Yeah, also- and I'm sure um, rhetorically it plays to your favor if you have less... Um- cash on hand in your campaign than your opponent. But that said, cash on hand helps. A lot of people still vote based on, you know, local television ads. Um, Not everybody listens to podcasts. Uh, I think you're likely to get, you know, the high information voter. So let's help Liam reach the low information voter, which unfortunately remains the majority, um, by giving him some money. (laughs) If you can afford it, please send this guy some cash. We might actually get a UBI supporter in Congress. Let's do this. There you go. Yeah. And one key argument I try to make, too, is that we've we've been conditioned to to feel um, helpless in helping out. If, if we're not like super rich and can't write thousand dollar checks, we feel that we can't. If you get several thousand people giving five or ten dollars a month, you can win almost any race in this country. And I think if more of us got involved and helped out in these good congressional races, we could get better people in primaries, putting better people in the generals and actually win seats. 
Yeah, there you go. So just if if just each one of the people and I, I you know, I, I understand some of you can't afford it. If you can't afford it, then by all means, keep your money. Don't go into debt to, to, to do this. But if you can afford it, you know, if you, you can afford to get a latte every now and then, um, please go send Liam five dollars a month. If, if all of you guys did that or even a majority of you guys did that, that could be enough to swing the election. Liam, thank you so much for coming on. Um, is there anything that you want to say in closing for our listeners? Um, that it's, it's been my pleasure to talk about it and that, again, I am a fierce advocate for actually cutting through the BS and addressing these real issues. And I will fight to change this situation and push the needle on things like basic income. So um, I, I look forward to, to being your advocate on the Hill. All right, let's keep moving forward. And moving forward is our gumbo. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together, through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.